today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue our apologetic series by looking one more time at miracles. Father Ian Pelko will join us once again to look specifically at the miracles that the New Testament says our Lord performed. Did he actually perform these? Or are these just made-up stories passed from word of mouth and finally collected in the New Testament as fodder for a new religion? How can we possibly prove these fantastic stories from nearly 2,000 years ago as being accurate? You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com slash apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you'll find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to as well as all of the resources we're posting, but if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now let's join Father Ian Palco for episode number 19 of the Apologetic Series here on the SSPX Podcast. to our next episode on our apologetic series. Father Palco, great to see you again. Good to see you again. Yeah. Now, um, so behind the scenes, we are recording this uh, very end of May. Okay, I love that mug. Oh, that you do? That is awesome. Oh, that is. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm, unfortunately, my video seems to be, you know, it, it, it turned around here. But yeah, no, I, I, I saw this and I had to have it. I'm, that is, that is, yeah. sorry, sorry, that was a little squirrel moment for me. Um, so we're recording this at the end of May and last time we talked, um, your episode actually is going to be coming out this Friday as we're recording yeah. it, but you recorded that back in December. I we did. Said, yeah. You're over in, uh, on the other side of the world, but now as we're recording this, where are you? I'm in Kansas city, Missouri now. And oh, oddly great. enough, last time we were recording, I was over at the seminary in Dillwyn. So I, I was assigned as a priest over in, in New Zealand but now I was I was already slated to be transferred back in uh, and it ended up being in early March that I came back here to Kansas City. Um, so, yeah, now I'm, I'm assisting here at the uh, at St. Vincent's and um, yeah, recording an episode for you. So Great. it may be, it may be time wise very close, but uh, as when it yeah. comes out. But there you are. Yeah. Well, welcome back stateside and, and oh, great to have you again. It's good to be we back. talked last episode, it was episode 11 about miracles in general, the nature of miracles, mm -hmm. et cetera. Uh, and now for this episode, uh, as we're looking at it now, it's going to be, uh, episode 18. So a, a little bit while later or episode eight. Yeah. 18. Um, now we're talking about new Testament miracles as mm -hmm. proof of the church. We've already looked at the new Testament in, uh, some specifics about prophecies about our Lord, about the divinity of our Lord. Uh, father Frank's talked to about the uh, resurrection, which we would say is probably the greatest miracle of our Lord. Right. Um, so now we're going to be talking about some other uh, miracles that happened in the life of Christ and surrounding uh, our Lord Jesus Christ himself in the New Testament. But before we get into that, since it's been a little while since we've talked about miracles, can we kind of recap a little bit about, about what that means? Oh, sure. Um, so if, you know, we'll shamelessly plug the old episode. So go back and watch yeah. it. It was, it was the best one in the series so far, I'm sure. Extraordinary. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, so in, in any case, yeah, we're, we're, we, we do want to recap what a miracle is here. Um, and I, it's uh, this general idea of miracles is where so we have an effect that exceeds nature. Right. Um, I, I was trying to think up some lame joke about miracles going beyond nature here. But, you know, it's it's early in the morning. So, you know, dad jokes are just not going to come out for a little while, at the very yeah. least, until more coffee happens. Um <laughs> But it's good to review a few, a few ideas about this theory before we go into the examples. Um, 
And in fact, we have to sort of take take stock of the value of the examples. Each one of these miracles we'll look at. In fact, any miracle that we could bring up, except maybe the resurrection, since it's sort of the miracle of miracles, um, are going to just be interesting anecdotes, um, instances and ex- experiences that will they're providing evidence, but they're not establishing a general rule on their own. I think that's important to understand. And um, it's, it's the value comes for a lot of them in the number of them, the extent of them, uh, the consistency of them. It's the combination that gives them value. It's sort of like the scientific method, right? Uh, we, we talked before in the last episode, scientific bathroom, chemical engineer in my case, um, and I've been teaching chemistry. So uh, these ideas of you don't just do one test and, oh, yeah, it's done. You, you go through a, a series of tests, the repeatability of these things, the consistency, that establishes the pattern, and that gives us the greater knowledge that, that comes from there. Um, okay, so that, there's that. And then if we go back to the idea of what a miracle is, it's an effect beyond all created causes, which will necessarily have God as its author. It's not a violation of the laws of nature. I, that was that we, we were trying to establish that very clearly before. It's not violating the laws of nature as if God says, well, yeah, I created these laws, but they're not good enough. So I'm going to set them aside. That ends up impacting his wisdom. Um, it's where God is inserting himself into the course of nature so that the course of nature changes from what it typically would be. Um, so, the example we used before, and I have a pen this time, um, I, so uh, not the cell phone as last time. But when I when the pen is being held up by my hand, I'm not violating nature by that. If I drop it, gravity works. It's that force, that normal force that I'm creating. If it were floating there, there's just some normal force through an abnormal um, an abnormal conduit that's holding the pen up. So it's not violating nature. It's working within nature, but it's changing the course of nature. Just like a medicine can stop a disease, uh, that support can then keep something from falling. The only difference here is it's not a created cause. It's not my hand. It's not the drug that I'm taking. And so when we have that, we have somebody working a miracle if I'm making the pen float. I'm at best what philosophy would call an occasional cause. Um not that I don't show up sometimes and I don't show up other times. It's that sometimes this happens, sometimes it doesn't. Um, I can prompt the effect, but I'm not causing the effect, properly speaking. A real miracle is only God causing that effect. Mm-hmm. And and we'll note, yes, you are in Kansas City. Yes, you're on Flora <laughs> Avenue right off Troost. And yep. there's going to be some sirens nearby. Yep. It's there, a beautiful there will section be some of town. It, it is. <laughs> You get used to them at night too. It's it's uh, yeah. you can sleep through them after a while. So um, <laughs> it's like St. Mary's in the train, right? The, it's, yeah, exactly. it's a constant. It will be there. <laughs> so, um, All right. So there, there's a few things we need to look at with, sure. with any any miracle. Um, mm-hmm. First, I guess we need need to look at did it actually happen? Is it truthful that this thing happened? Is is it a true account? The historical truth. We talked about that last okay. time. It's it's the evidence as to this effect happening. And that's just a question of history. Um, did it happen? Um, did it happen that I came from New Zealand here? I can show you my plane ticket. There's, there's historical proof for it. I witnessed testimony that the effect happened. 
doesn't establish it's a miracle, but if it didn't happen, if it's just a nice story, well, we can sort of discount everything there. There's also the philosophical truth. It's nothing to do with philosophy. Um, here is the effect of miracle. I mean, I can see somebody who's healed from a disease because they took the treatment that the doctor gave them. So we exclude natural causes. We exclude diabolical causes. Therefore, we have only left God as a cause, um, a, the first cause. And then there is another kind of important point, the relevant truth, the so what of the miracle, as I call it before. What's this miracle trying to show? It's not really a scientific question. It's more a contextual question. The miracle worker may claim that it's trying to show something, but we, we look at the context here and sometimes it won't be absolutely clear, but it is clear that it's doing something supernatural. Um, and, and sometimes we'll debate whether, what exactly it's showing. It can show a lot of different things. And in the New Testament, we'll see that happen. Okay. I'm going to ask kind of a, maybe a dumb or an obvious question, but other than these are great stories and these mm -hmm. shows that maybe God is God beyond that obvious, what is, why would we want to look at the miracles in the New Testament? What value do the miracles in the New Testament have other than they're just great stories? Well, they are good stories that there, there's the, there's the um, literary value we could have there, but the value of looking at miracles in general, I mean, go back to that episode we had before and they're always going to be a purpose as supernatural. It's again, the, so what here works for the new Testament miracles just as much. There's going to be some supernatural purpose. It could be testifying to God's goodness. It could be showing his anger at certain evils. Um, maybe it's recommending a practice of a virtue or manifesting the holiness of a person in the new Testament, particularly of Christ, um, authenticating messages from God or that this messenger is speaking on behalf of God. That that's, very much most of the New Testament miracles themselves. And after the fact, in the New Testament times, miracles that are related to saints, Eucharistic miracles, um, these things will, will show God's power on things or uh, that the messenger is speaking for God or some other supernatural claim, uh, confirming a doctrine, for instance. Those are really important things because sometimes Sometimes we need that extra proof. We need that extra sign that these things are the case. But in the in the New Testament itself, this confirmation of Christ's mission, of his claims, especially of his divinity, are, are the core to um, to why we have these miracles here. Um, if if you if you think about it, if we start removing the miracles. If we start removing these, then the New Testament just becomes a nice story. And I think it was one of the priests beforehand who kind of stole my thunder on on the whole Lord of the Rings without the ring uh, for prophecy. Um, yeah. When the New Testament is missing these miracles, then Gollum is just running around a cave for 500 years for no apparent reason, fighting off orcs with his hand. Um, and he's not the biggest guy in the world. The story just doesn't make sense. Right. We'll, we'll talk about this perhaps a little bit beforehand, but um, in the case of Lazarus, right? Lazarus is rises from the dead, but that's the whole reason that the Jews now want to kill our Lord because it's a proof of his divinity. Um, but if Lazarus didn't rise from the dead, then the whole sequence of events falls apart. 
Um, so in the New Testament, the value of the miracles is actually helping to establish the whole reason for the story to happen, why it happened, in the way it happens, why it happens that way. Um, so we can see that our Lord comes to work certain miracles, and the result of those is going to be several fold. Oftentimes, it's going to prove his divinity or prove his power from God. Um, we could probably take, uh, let's just take an example with the, um, Okay. With Matthew 8, where Jesus comes and he heals the paralytic man. So okay. the scribes take scandal at his telling the man, your sins are forgiven. Um, uh, I have it written down um, in the notes somewhere here. So um, yeah. the, the, the text, but you may know that the son of man has power over sin, to, on earth to forgive sins. He says to the man, sick of the palsy, arise, take up thy bed. So he says... Um, he says exactly why he's doing this. And the multitude okay. not only then sees that this is the case, but it, te- the scripture will say they fear and glorify God who has given such power to men. So when the Lord makes the claim, he, he's received this power to forgive sins. He works the miracle to testify to the claim. And we see not only that result that they now this is proven, but the purpose of the miracle here gives glory to God by t- showing his mercy through Christ. Um, Christ doesn't make that explicit here, but we see the effect in that. And all miracles are going to have their ultimate purpose to cause honor for God, even if only indirectly and afterward. Example of and a this scene. is why. Yeah, this is this is why our Lord doesn't doesn't perform the miracle for Herod when he wants it. This is why our Lord doesn't just go around like here, blossom fig tree, do this right, like. I mean, let's, let's be honest, Father, if, if you and I had the power of, of miracles, um, it would be pretty tempting for us to go around and just have some fun with some stuff. Our life Lord doesn't would, do that. Life would be easy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, it wouldn't – lunch, lunch, preparing lunch, it would just be like, <laughs> and we're done, right? Um, it would be like Sleeping Beauty making the cake. <laughs> yeah. Per, perfect example there. Yeah. And, and, and that case, right. Well, we can talk about it a bit later because it, it will, it'll tie into some of the miracles of the gospel, but this is one of the proofs of the gospels themselves being, um, being canonical, right? Why, why some of the, we've accepted certain ones as canonical of parts of scripture and other ones we've rejected. One of the evidences is that our Lord in some of them, just acts in a very selfish way, doing miracles because it makes his life easier, you know, bringing back little birds to life because they're cute. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's not our Lord and that's not how he acts. And yet the gospels show none of that self-interest. It, it's exactly the opposite. As a result, it shows the glory of God it doesn't just show our Lord doing fun, happy things or, you know, performing a little miracle for Herod. Even, right. even if that may have got won him a friend, right, and won him some support against uh, against the Jews, he's not going to do that, even though it may benefit him, because the the miracle is is more noble than that. We could say. Sure, I'm not sure if I cut you off. Were you so you were talking about how the the miracles give this this canonical uh, background? They they prove in a certain way the historicity of the New Testament as well. They, they do, right? Um, the historicity of the New Testament, but also the the reason why the church has chosen certain texts, um, of course, inspired by the Holy Ghost. There's that aspect there, too, which is beyond the scope of what we're talking about today. But one of the one of the proofs that can be shown beyond just the, the who wrote this book 
and what science does it have? Was it read in the church uh, for in liturgical purposes? Was it accepted in the early church? Those kinds of proofs there. It, the consistency of why the why the miracles, why the actions that are recorded are recorded, and the result from there, that does show a, a kind of historicity or, or a kind of proof that these texts are different. They're, they're different than these other ones that clearly show some signs of our Lord acting in ways that are a little bit beneath him, a little bit beneath a God who, who comes to save man and to raise man up. Um, a God who is not interested in himself, but an interest in pouring himself out um, in the message sure. of the sacred heart. I'm, I'm sure we're going to get into this, the, the um, denial that the miracles happened or maybe a retelling of them so that they're not actual miracles. But from the very early stages, did people deny that these miracles happened at the very, at the very beginning of, of, you know, the new Testament or the new Testament period, the early church, I guess, um, fumbling well, all around that. Yeah. Was, so eventually people accept this. Well, eventually we're going to get to things like the rationalists and the modernists and uh, in our own country here, uh, Thomas Jefferson having a great respect for our Lord and his philosophy and his, his um, you know, uh, humanistic characteristics of taking care of the poor, such to the point of rewriting the Gospels, uh, redrafting them for himself to exclude all the supernatural and all the miracles. Um, uh -huh. The rationalists love to do that. But you go back and, in fact, the miracles of the New Testament didn't have any doubters, any serious doubters, until really about the time of the Enlightenment, um, and certainly until the 19th century, no Christians really started having any doubts about these things. It was more later along to try to just you know poo-poo the idea of miracles, and again, we can go back and in the miracles in general, we establish why they're possible. Um, but you go back to the early church and even the enemies of our Lord, I mean, even the Jews themselves, who certainly have, have an interest in saying those weren't miracles, the best they were coming up with is, sure, this effect happened, but it's actually a diabolical effect. Or, sure, this effect happened, but these are just things that our Lord, you know, when he was in Egypt as a little child, somehow he learned them there and that now he's applying them. But, but even uh -huh. in the early church, the enemies weren't denying miracles or weren't denying at least the effect happened. They would start attacking that philosophical truth. Are these actually miracles? Um, they would start trying to, trying to show that they weren't actually miracles or that they were prodigies, as we called them before, the diabolical, um, the diabolical appearances of a miracle. Um, but okay. in fact, so later along, what you'll have is actually to try to separate out that Christ of history and the Christ of the faith. Um, with the resurrection, and uh, I think Father Franks, I'm, I'm sure um, I haven't listened to the whole of his podcast yet, unfortunately. Um, but one of the things with the resurrection, right, you'll have these modernists who say Christ rose in the hearts of the faithful, but not actually. And, and we start undermining the whole purpose of the gospel there. But no one actually... It would have been a perfect objection in the 300s, right? Perfect objection when, you know, St. Irenaeus is, is writing against the heresies of, and trying to attack the other apologists for the paganism and the philosophers. It been a perfect opportunity to say, but these miracles didn't even happen. But they didn't, they don't make that attack. They, they don't at all. Um, instead, even the Jews, they would, who had everything to gain by denying the miracles, even those outside, the best they can do is the is like for instance the Talmud suggesting the power came from a Gnostic knowledge 
or some, in fact, it was a diabolical power as, as we, as we hear in, in right. scripture itself. He, our Lord himself is accused of, of using, of healing or casting out devils by the power of, of the devil himself. Um, it's a denial of that, not really a denial of the historical effect. Right. And, and further, and I'm not sure if we're going to get into the miracle of Lazarus, um, himself as, as, as a, as a separate kind of subtopic within this episode, but the, the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead, the entire rest of the gospel story after that, meaning the, the death and the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, Palm Sunday, et cetera. None of that makes sense without Lazarus. Mm -hmm. If that wasn't a real miracle, the passion and death of our Lord wouldn't have happened. I mean, it, it, it may have eventually come, come to a head, but it, it certainly wasn't going to come to a head that quickly. And it, recall in scripture, they want to kill Lazarus as well. It's it, not, not oh, just yeah. our Lord, right? They, they want to do him in, but Lazarus too. So they accepted that he was back, right? Everyone knew he died and they accepted that, that he rose from the dead. Um, if that hadn't happened, why would they want to kill him? I had no idea they wanted to kill him as well. Yeah, no, no. You, you read in the passages that that he he was on their hit list just as much because he was the evidence, right? It's you, you, uh, if you want to eventually deny it, you have to get rid of the evidence. And here's a living, breathing human being um, who is the evidence because at one point in time he's a stinking, rotting corpse. And uh, right? yeah, the, I think probably the, the 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 best line in in the gospel for that, you know, just. It, it makes me chuckle every time I read it is just the response like, Lord, he stinketh. Like, why would we open the tomb? This is a, it's a terrible idea, Lord, but yeah. here we are. Wow. Um, all right. So let's start to dive into some of the, some of the miracles and we're not going to get into every single one. Um, but well, how long do you want to spend? Like to... We, I have a couple yeah, of hours. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, well, what do you want to, what do you want to start with father? Well, uh, let's start with one of the first ones you see. I mean, okay, the first miracle is is the wedding at Cana. Um, mm -hmm. But I think for that, if we wanted to look at the changing of water into wine, um, we, we sort of, we would have to have some scientific analysis of the product. And I mean, as much as I would like to sample that product, it may not age so well. And I don't think we've preserved any. So um, yeah. if we go just a little bit later in, um, in the gospels, we have the feeding of the 5,000. I think the miraculous multiplication of the loaves, um, that's a good place to start. And I think it's a particularly good place to start because the historical truth of this is a fairly easy one to establish. It's one of, it's one of also the miracles, um, one of only, I think, two miracles, the resurrection and this, that are recorded by every gospel writer. It was an important, it was really an important thing for the apostles and the evangelists to record this and speak about it. And, um, and uh, so I think it's a good place to start. And I think already we have to make a little distinction here. There was the feeding of the 5,000. So that's oftentimes that's recorded by all the gospel writers, but then only two of them talk about the second time it happens. And, and there are two separate times where 4,000 are fed. And okay. it's interesting in between those two, we have John chapter six and John chapter six is the discourse about the Eucharist, which is going to tie directly into this where uh, a bunch of people uh, clearly understand what our Lord is trying to say and they're uncomfortable with it. So they leave perhaps about a thousand. So we have 5,000, then 4,000. So, um, 
But we'll take the first one there, the, the feeding of the 5,000, because it's accorded, attested to by all the gospel writers. Um, and so we want to show not only the evidence for it happening, but its value for apologetics as well. And um, before we talked about the various truths that we needed to show, the historical truth, the philosophical truth, the relevant truth. So let's go through that, that kind of hierarchy there. We'll start with the historical truth of this. Um, so the first miraculous multiplication of, of the loaves here is attested to by all the gospel writers, as I said, greater or lesser detail. Um, and they show us certain details which history can actually then go and demonstrate, at least to a certain degree. So we can confirm some of these things through history. Um, first, the story X is actually going to make sense historically. It, it, there's, a, there's a system here. We, if we go through, we can connect the points. It's not just a story. It, it fits into the whole story. So this feeding happens just after the death of John the Baptist, what is reported to, to our Lord. And at this point in time, if you go back earlier in the gospel, you know, uh, we, we read it during Advent. Um, John is trying to sort of get people unattached from him and attached to our Lord. And so now he's been in jail. He's sent his disciples, go see the miracles that are happening and report back to me as a sort of way of pushing them towards our Lord. And now most of his followers would be followers of Jesus. They would be followers of our Lord by this point in time. So they're not coming out into the desert to see John. They're coming out to see Christ. We also know from St. Luke, and if you recall, St. Luke is the one who's sort of the scientific, he's a doctor anyway, but he's sort of the scientific historian. And he's going to be interviewing lots of people to write his gospel to fill in details. Um, why we have the first couple of chapters, details about the nativity, he would have interviewed Our Lady. Um, here, he's able to identify the actual place where this miracle has happened. He, he writes that it's near Bethsaida. Um, uh, and this, the, the best traditions show that this is in a place called Tagba, which is just south of Capernaum. It, it's in that region. So we have the tradition matching up with what the scripture in where St. Luke says. And here we have a specific location. It, today, there's a church there. And from the earliest of days, this was not a settlement. It, it was an empty place. Um, and there, that's what exactly what the Gospels claim, that Jesus withdrew to a desert place. Um, St. Jerome himself calls this place a desert place, a place not inhabited until at least the fifth century, but yet close enough where the crowds that uh, were looking for our Lord could find him after about a day's journey. Takba is only about, I think it's about a little over, well, it's a few miles from Capernaum. So walking on foot into the desert without a major road there, um, it's at least an hour's journey, maybe, maybe even just a bit more. They don't know exactly where he is, so finding him would take a little bit longer. And so in scripture, we read that they went out to find him. And if they find him after... A bit of time, he would have preached and he was famous for healing miracles. They would have asked for these kinds of things. And now they're here. He's preached to them. They're hungry, or at least they're, they're needing to go back home. But it would have been at least an hour, if not longer, to return back to Capernaum. And so it makes sense that our Lord would now take interest in, in their, their good, right? The, the apostles at this point in time, if, if you read through the scriptures, 
they're interested in sending him, sending everybody back. It's late Lord, right? And they're hungry. Let, let them go. But he wants to feed them there. Um, and he goes through why that's important. Okay. We don't have the money, uh, but we do have these loaves and you know, that's the Andrew and, um, Andrew and Philip are kind of fighting over who, who gets to talk to our Lord at that point in time. Philip's a little yep. timid. So, uh, well, you know, go ask Andrew, he'll, he'll sort it out. Um, um, but, um, it, it makes sense, right? It's too far for them to go back to get food. And the round trip to, for the apostles to go get food would have been at least two hours, maybe more. And then you have to haul food for 5,000 people back, right? Um, it, it's, it makes sense that our Lord wants to work a miracle there and then. The, the, the context of the story, why he's coming, why they're coming there makes sense. And then not only that, we have the opportunity for a miracle witnessed by thousands of people, not just a couple of people who testified to it, thousands of eyewitnesses who are going to keep the memory of this location. It's passed down such that this area in the middle of nowhere is able to become a site where a church is built and people go on pilgrimage for many years afterward, even though only in scripture, it's only generally recorded. And so this, okay. that's why with this, the importance of this historical truth for a miracle like this, we have outside evidence for this. We have testimonies for centuries of where and when this happened. It, it's, it doesn't require scripture, but scripture is supported by it. Okay. So next that's the historical truth. Next, we get into the philosophical truth. And again, the philosophical truth is kind of what we would call uh, anecdotal or circumstantial evidence where we can right. we can present some some logic. This would make sense. Yeah. So where do you want to go with that, Father? Well, so, yeah, remember also the uh, philosophical truth essentially is trying to say, is the effect that we now know happened? We know this feeding happened. Is this a miracle? And for that, all we okay. need to do is exclude natural causes and exclude diabolical causes. So the first example for why this is a miracle is we can talk about how difficult it is to transport food for 5,000 people, right? Um, the consecration in St. Mary's of the, ch of the church there, I imagine feeding all of those people was not just, you know, a bag over a shoulder, walk two hours from, I don't know, Topeka uh, to get out there. Right. It, it's, it's a lot more involved than that. And you probably ask the ladies and, and the caterers who, who facilitated that. They're not going to say, oh, yeah, it was just, you know, we did a little bit of a little bit of work. I mean, in a certain sense, feeding that many people was probably a kind of miracle in a wider sense, of course. Um, right. But, okay, if you're bringing that much food to feed everybody, right, it's going to be pretty obvious that you're, you're transporting all of this stuff, right? Even bread, even a fish. Even if it's just a simple meal like that, you're going to have to bring a lot. And no one brought that. It was very clear that no one brought that. The, the Gospels show and testify everyone was hungry. And it kind of makes sense they would have been. They came a day's journey, which would have been an hour or two for them to walk, right? Why do you bring a, a whole setup if, if you're going for a couple of days? You can return in the evening. You can go back. So it would have made sense they wouldn't have brought food or would have brought very little, maybe just a couple of barley loaves and some fish. Um, so there's no point to this miracle and no fame would have come if the apostles just 
you know, grabbed a bunch of uh, stuff and brought it with them. It didn't happen, right? So the apostles didn't bring the food. Our Lord didn't bring the food. He was already out there. If everyone else had food already and they just shared this food, it's not a miracle. And no one would have recorded this in such a miraculous way. It wouldn't be a site of pilgrimage, right? And this is sort of a modernist critique. You, you get this, that, well, our Lord preached to them and the miracle was that they, they finally became generous enough to share. Um, it's not much of a miracle, right? And why would you record that? Oh, yeah. Remember that time that, that the, Lord, the Lord talked to us and we felt really generous. Like, yeah, let's right. go on pilgrimage to that spot. Right. No. It doesn't not something make that all four gospel writers would say. Yeah, either. no, certainly not that. And certainly not something that all four gospel writers would present in this, like, you know, supremely miraculous way. And something that, you know, all the apostles were so confounded because uh, he's talking about these seven. We, we can't feed everybody with that. Oh, like, oh, oh, that's what he meant. Right. It it, it doesn't make much sense. So the, the sheer magnitude of the miracle already establishes that it has to be some outside force. It, it can't just be explained away by people bringing bread. Um, and we can also talk about the completeness of, of the feeding here, right? Seven barley loaves and a few fish, right? And yet we have 12 baskets afterward of, of crumbs and, and imagine some fish bones too. Um, we have all of this stuff left over more than what we started with. If the miracle was just that everybody got fed, it, it could easily be sort of mistaken for, again, some natural explanation or, okay, maybe everybody did eat, and but we have more. Uh, so the miracle was not just everybody eats as much as he wants and not just a little bit. That, that's, that's nice. But they're satiated. They're full. They're happy, um, you know, bread and circuses at this point in time. They're, they're, they're doing great. And... Now we have yet more. So there's the leftovers are also part of the miracle. We can see, we have absolute clear evidence that there was more leftover. There was a multiplication. And it's not just that everybody, it's now in everybody's stomach, it's here for everybody to see. Um, mm -hmm. They can, it's not merely hypnosis. Not everybody just, you know, our Lord said some great words and swung his little pocket watch or something like that. Now all of a sudden they don't feel hungry anymore. And yet there's right. just, it's, there's more, there's more left over. Again, that helps establish the philosophical truth as well, because we, we have a clear evidence for something that can't be explained. Um, also, I don't know of any way natural to make more bread out of bread, right? You can yep. create more yeast out of it. You could, there's no natural explanation for more bread to happen from less bread. It, it's, it's, it's almost philosophically impossible, we would say. And so, okay, maybe it's a diabolical cause. He, the devil could have, you know, could have a control over matter more than we can. He could assemble what appears to be bread. He, you know, said to our Lord in the desert, turn the bread into stones. You could easily do that if, right. But, but that's excluded as well because of the whole point of this, that, the reason for this is to encourage, and we'll talk about this with the relevant truth, right, is to also show a connection with our Lord being the new Moses and also mm -hmm. to show something connected to the Eucharist. The devil would certainly not want to establish our Lord as the new Moses, if anything, just the opposite, and certainly not want to promote you know, acceptance of this doctrine of the Eucharist. 
that clearly is not what the devil would do. And so we can already exclude diabolical causes as well. And so right, right. there, we've excluded natural explanations, diabolical explanations. What's left, it seems to be a miracle. Wow. You said there's a connection with uh, the manna, with Moses. Uh, I hadn't considered that one before. Yeah. So remember, uh, in in the desert, they are uh, the, the connection is God is going to send them the manna each day, enough, more than enough for them to eat. So, you know, a multiplication of what they need. Um, and this bread from heaven comes down to feed them so they can continue on, on their, their exodus, on their journey. Um, but if you think about it, the... Our Lord needs to be established as that kind of prophet. This is early in his ministry, and this is one of the reasons why he works the miracle. If he can give them real bread, like actual real bread in, in the desert, not just this manna, which they need to cook and they need to do all these things with, clearly he's as much of a prophet as Moses. He's the new Moses. Add to it, he gives them fish. Moses, okay, yes, there were there were some birds that kind of flopped down in the middle of the desert when the Israelites were out there from time to time. Um, but he gives them actual fish without going and catching the fish. He's doing mm -hmm. all of these things without them having to do the work that was required. So this is a greater miracle. Not only a, this, this bread can be gathered up and kept, unlike the manna. You tried to do that except on the day before the Sabbath, and it would rot and get all maggoty afterward. Um, so Christ not only has this divine-like power over matter that we see here, another, another part of this relevant truth, but he is established in the mind of these Jews as the new Moses. And this helps to establish later his claim to be the Messiah as well. He's able to create more than previously existed. He's able to do a greater miracle than what they were used to in, uh, with regard to the Old Testament. I, I did mention, too, there's also this connection to the Eucharist. We can't leave that apart here. Look at the placement of this. The, the feeding is right before our Lord is going to talk about, in John chapter 6, the Eucharist. He's going to give this discourse on the bread of life. He's going to instruct the 5,000 to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And it's going to, as I said before, scandalize about 1,000 people who leave Almost, it scandalizes the apostles, who, who, but they have nowhere to go, as, as St. Peter said. You have the words of life. We don't understand this. It, it, but it's so clearly connected to what happened beforehand that 4,000 people, despite the fact that they don't understand it, are willing to stick around and willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. And it testifies also to Christ's mercy and goodness. Here are people that are suffering, and he's doing this work for them, not for himself. And... Mm -hmm. Add to it the relevant truth here touches on the historicity of the gospel. Because we can show that there is a historical sign for what is written in the gospel, we can also show to a certain degree that the gospel is accurate historically. I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here, um, and, okay. and maybe we'll talk about some of the Eucharistic miracles uh, a little bit later. But since we can you brought try, up yeah. this connection to to the Eucharist itself. I was talking with a priest, and I'm, I'm not going to name him because it probably doesn't. Uh, it was just a private conversation. But he told me uh, that it has happened on more than one occasion where uh, they made a mistake and they didn't consecrate enough hosts for, for mass. And there was just a mm -hmm. few hosts in the ciborium or maybe half of what, what was needed. And he goes and distributes communion and everyone had enough. Um, oh, wow. Did, 
does that pass, I've never had that, that happen. Pass, <laughs> you you haven't. I know, uh, no. I, I, but I it would remember. seem to sort of make sense, though. Like, no. I, do, I, do you I, think that that is believable? Oh, sure. Sure. I mean, if, if our Lord could do it with bread, he can certainly do it with his own body, right? Uh, whether it's uh, whether it's his own body, sacramentally, his own body, substantially his own body, appearing uh, in, in to be bread. I mean, if he can do that with bread, he can do it with anything. Um, so it's entirely yeah. possible and and maybe shows his mercy in certain cases to a forgetful priest who forgets to put the ciborium out there. Um, sure. I, I don't know. There's been a few times where I've shown up at a chapel and, and you know, on a, on a Friday or something like that, thinking that the uh, good, you know, first Friday mass or something like that opened the ciborium and there's like three hosts in there going, oh, no. <laughs> Oh no, there's 30 <laughs> people. How am I going to do this? And you can, you can make it happen. Um, sometimes you can divide them up pretty much. And you yeah. know, we're not talking about the doctrine of the Eucharist here, but Christ is present entirely under every little particle. Why we, why we take sure. so much care to clean the ciborium out, to, to wipe off the, the communion plate. We don't want even the single smallest little particle that we could find to, to go to waste. Um, Again, yeah. tie back to that miracle, right? We don't want any of those fragments to go. So apostles, you, you go out, you collect them all up. It's, it, that's that's the very clear connection there too. Yeah. Well, thanks for indulging that little side note. No, no um, problem at all. All right. So let, let's keep going. There's um, if, there's a there's a bunch. There's three or four dozen miracles that are recorded in the life of Christ, if I'm not mistaken. And I think St. Saint John at the end of his gospel says, and there were many more things that we aren't even talking about. Yeah, no, and and that's you know that uh, good apologetic value side note here for that passage, like you know, solo scriptura. If there's so many other things that our Lord did that aren't recorded, they're they're probably valuable, right? And so, scripture itself, Saint John, right, the 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 the, the spiritual writer of all things is saying, yeah, guys, this isn't it. This is this is just the beginning. This is just a taste. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, so end sidebar there, but. You know, sure. if, if, if you're talking with people who have that, that idea and that's then, then already the scriptures itself suggest that there's far more, but I think there's, um, I think it probably depends on how you count certain miracles. Um, and then, you know, if done to 5,000 people, is that 5,000 miracles? Um, but I think we could probably make about 40 or so specific miracles that we could call them physical miracles because um, there, there are times where we actually see something happen, a healing or, or something along those lines um, where there's a physical um, there's a physical uh, action that happens. Um, and St. Matthew and Luke are going to mention additional miracles on top of that. They're going to allude to them without specifically mentioning them. So. Our Lord performed more that were in the gospel. St. John even says there are many more things that are not recorded. And, and he'd require an entire library and he would know because he, he's, he was a prolific writer. So, um, and he lived for a long time. So you can only imagine how much he was probably writing. Um, but sure. as we said before, the miracles, and, and we will, we're going to have to sort of look generally at this. Otherwise, again, we'll spend hours on every single miracle, picking it apart and things like that. And, and no, no, we're not going to do that. But we sure. can sort of generally look at all of those physical miracles as sort of in one. And we can give evidence for certain parts of them. And, and then maybe um, those who are interested can explore them more in detail. I'm sure there's good resources that, that are out there. Um, yeah. But those miracles that we see in the gospel, all of them, as we said before, they're nothing like what we see in the apocryphal gospels. Most of those were written in the second, third century anyway. So they're well after what they claim to be. So there's already some suspicion there. Um, 
but they're nothing like those Gnostic or apocryphal gospels, the false ones. Um, those show a, a, not only a difference in the, the names of the miracles, but a, a entirely different kind. Um, miracles that are, again, more selfish, more kind of just showy, rather than something where our Lord is trying to communicate a truth. Um, Christ always works in the Gospels and the, the true ones, miracles out of charity and out of mercy for the purpose of helping others or for the purpose of, of glorifying God by establishing the truth of what he's saying and, and so furthering the mission that he's, that he's doing, which is to help other people, to, to really save them, right? Um, and the apocryphal works, they, they're, they're for his own benefit for vain reasons. And so that's one of the reasons, as we said before, we can exclude those gospels, those writings as, as you know, nice religious literature, perhaps, but not true. Um, yeah. As, as we that's said before. I, I, yeah. Go ahead. No, was, I was, was just going to say something I, I hadn't considered, but it makes sense. The charity or mercy. I mean, I'm just kind of going through the miracles in my head, the, mm -hmm. the healing of the lepers, the raising of Lazarus, the... The, the healing of the deaf and blind man. Um, mm -hmm. It's all Naeem. mercy. Yeah. yeah. Here, here's a, here's a widow in, in Naeem. She's going to bury her only son. So not mm -hmm. only has she lost her son and that's tragic enough. Um, and seemingly suddenly here's, here she is at the funeral, right? Not only that, but this, if it's her only son, this means she's destitute, right? With yes. the kind the culture that was there, she is now destitute. She has nobody. Um, and our Lord sees her and knows in the future that his own mother is going to be like this. Why he entrusts her, why he entrusts uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary to St. John. This is this is your son, right? Mother, behold your son, son, behold the mother. Um, he, he has mercy. He, he has compassion. That's one of those very important things with, with that nobility, with that sort of the, the chivalry that we have uh, uh, later along through Christian culture, encouraging that kind of that kind of mercy. Um and uh, yeah, it's it's a beautiful thing, and, and not only is it a miracle, but it establishes you know the goodness of Christ, um, the goodness of of this faith that He's trying to trying to teach. Um, mm -hmm. And remember, we said before too, um, for the historical truth of these things too, the enemies of Christ and the um, in the church accepted the historical truth of these miracles, right? Don't have people just, you know, lambasting these things as, oh, that effect didn't happen. You're just imagining it. That's not that's not the case. Um, no one says these are hallucinations in the early church. An easy claim, but instead they, they go and they attack the the, the, the philosophical truth. They, they try to undermine the fact that these are, are, are miracles or not, not the historical truth. So the historical truth can be easily established that way. And again, we, we go back to the, the Lord of the Rings without the ring there. Um, yeah. Uh, so Sabbath day, right? Lots of healings on the Sabbath day. And, and, and the Pharisees are a little up in arms about the fact that he's doing work on the Sabbath. And not only does this give them the opportunity to say, but yeah, your animals, like you pull them out of a ditch. Why can't I help others? Um, but if there aren't a violation of the Sabbath, at least materially speaking, then what's the controversy over, right? If there's not actually mm -hmm. a healing, if our Lord is just talking to people and not healing them, if there's no miracles, there's no work. There's no violation. There's no controversy. Um, <clears throat> also, why are the crowds coming, right? If our Lord isn't working miracles, why is everybody rushing after him, right? Um, mm -hmm. They came to him because he was feeding them, the physical miracle, and he was healing them. And they wouldn't be following him if he wasn't performing miracles. The Pharisees also wouldn't have a hard time 
um, preventing them from following our Lord if he wasn't performing miracles. Oh, this guy's talking great and it would be a really easy attack. And yet the Pharisees are, are unable to stop these people from going out to see him um, and going for these, uh, going to see these miracles because he is actually another working thing, miracles. Another thing that's sort of interesting that, that I just learned recently is that during this time period, because again, the, there were all the signs, all the prophecies of the old Testament were leading towards this time that the, mm-hmm. that the redeemer would come, the Messiah would come there were other quote unquote messiahs around who were preaching and they had some followers, but obviously none of them were doing the miracles. And again, they were, they were put to death. They were, they were uh, debunked pretty easily. And Um, and who remembers who they were, right? We don't have names. We don't have gospels written because, right. Because there wasn't something special. There wasn't something, you know, unique. Um, and, and that uniqueness, those miracles, that that was essential to establishing our Lord's claims and establishing, you know, a faith that would last. Um, that that's that's a really important thing. Uh, add to this for the historical truth: Why were people bitter on Good Friday? Because they actually believed that you know he was going to bring this victory, this messianic kingdom, a victory over the Romans, and now he's dead, right? It's it, it looked so hopeful. We saw all these miracles. We saw the prophecies, and and now it's all it's all gone. We wouldn't have that bitterness if it was just oh yeah, one of these other guys and didn't work out. I guess we're going to move on right. to the next one. Um, no, they they were very bitter um, those days. Right. What about the philosophical truth of some of these other miracles that were you know just kind of going over very quickly? Right. Well. It, realistically, if we wanted to look at each one, we'd have to do that. Um, The philosophical truth for each one would have to be established independently, but we actually don't need to establish the truth of every miracle, Um, especially the the ones that are a bit less certain or harder to to demonstrate. Um, We don't need to even touch on those if we can show the the certainly provable miracles because they're going to prove that Christ is a divine messenger and has this divine power. And so the other ones are just sort of uh, icing on the cake, you could say. Um, but um, again, what are we doing here with philosophical truth? We're excluding the natural and then we're excluding the diabolical. So let's generally with these exclude um, the natural. Let's let's take some of those things that we know our Lord was claimed to do. We have the testimony eyewitness. We have the Pharisees as enemies saying that these things happen. Well, even so, no natural power can raise a man from the dead. <clears throat> it's impossible, right? Nature can give life to a life to a, a, a body in the beginning, but it can't restore life once the functions of life are gone. It can it can. Nature can heal certain things, but it can't heal the the whole death thing, right? Once life is gone, no one comes back by natural powers. This is a divine power only. This is God who has to do this. The soul can't, nature can't grab a soul and put it in, right? God has to do that. Um, So no natural power can do that. Anytime we see the raising of the dead, the widow of Naim, various other times, if we see that, um, well, it's certainly we don't even have to do any more than establish philosophical truth because the natural cause is out and diabolical cause too. devils could maybe puppet around a, a being. But, you know, Lazarus isn't going to be living for many years afterward by a diabolical power. So he and he's going to be stinking. Well, he already stunk. So he's going to continue stinking without without uh, further intervention. Um, so we can exclude in that case uh, the natural power and also a diabolical power, meaning what's left divine power. 
Um, we talked about the multiplication of the, of the uh, loaves for the 5,000s, right? No natural power can multiply bread and fish. That's one of the things we can establish there already. We could get rid of the philosophical, um, uh, we can get rid of the natural explanation, prove the philosophical truth, because nothing can do that. There's no power on earth that can do that. Um, no one, at least, I mean, we do have telemedicine now, but I, I we can't <laughs> heal people from a distance, right? We can't heal over the internet. You can send the drugs, but still, th those are drugs that are going there. And no one can cure it instantaneously. There can be very quick healings from certain drugs, but it still takes time. The body, <clears throat> pardon me, the body needs time to, to heal. The natural processes are not instantaneous. And yet we have our Lord curing from a distance, right? Um, the fever left at that hour. Our Lord is back, you know, a, a day's journey away. And he said, thy servant is healed, right? And, and the fever's gone, or, or the, the servant is, is risen from, from apparent death from a distance, right? No natural power can do that. Um, no natural power can just take mud, put it on eyes, and all of a sudden, now you can see. Right? doesn't happen. Um, and the diabolical causes, too. The, the devil can't cause these things either. Um, the Christ healings are also going to be... Um, He's accused, remember, of using diabolical power to cast out demons. So this is already something that the the uh, that the, the Pharisees are thinking. That's one of their main lines of attack. And yet, you look at what he's doing. These are not things that the devil would do, right? He, they're trying to establish again with the relevant truth later. Um, a, they're trying to establish something holy. The devil doesn't try to establish something holy. Yes, he can perhaps encourage virtue but never perfectly and always for, for an ul ulterior motive. He'll allow you to pray more so you're distracted from your duties, perhaps. But but he's not going to encourage virtue. He's not going to encourage holiness right. and, and a pursuit of that for a long time. We can exclude fraud, too. That's oftentimes an accusation. Um, there's so many miracles. There's so many varieties. They're worked on animals. The pigs, remember, cast out the devils from the pigs and or put them into mm -hmm. the pigs. They worked on men. They worked on devils. They're in public, they're in private, and they're with friends around, with enemies around as witnesses, right? These aren't things that are hidden. Um, and the sheer variety there establishes, again, if we can only even demonstrate a few of them, um, there we go. Right. Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and even just the, the logic that our Lord gives about whether or not he's working in, in cahoots with demons. It just, and, he, and he basically says, it doesn't make sense. Why, right. why would I cast out demons if I'm a demon? Yeah, the 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 house divided against itself will, will fall, will tumble. It can't it can't be sustained. Um, there also is, and and we we don't want to leave this off. The relevant truth for these miracles, why? Right. He again, we said it before, but Christ is pointing so often to these miracles as a proof of his mission, and to prove that God the Father has sent him. Um, sometimes specifically, we talked earlier about the paralytic, right? The forgiveness of sins. Right. So that you may know that God has given man the power to forgive sins. Arise, walk. Right. Um, raising of Lazarus. He, he clearly states this is uh, it's a divine power, but it's clearly stated so that they may believe what that he is God. And we also know the relevant truth here. Christ is trying to do this to elicit acts of faith. These miracles are a reward for faith. Um so even in the raising of Lazarus, right, 
whole dialogue we read in the Requiem Mass beforehand to, to Martha, and do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? I believe, Lord. Right. Then the mm-hmm. miracles worked. Uh, so many other times. Right. Um, you know, it, it, the faith is demanded and as a reward for the faith and encouragement to faith. Therefore, um, the miracles worked. So ultimately also establishes the, the goodness of God, et cetera. But it encourages that virtue. And we talked about how before that is one of those one of those relevant truths. That's one of the reasons that our Lord, uh, our miracles are worked in general. Sure. So these are these are the miracles of the New, of the New Testament that mm-hmm. were done by our Lord, that were performed by our Lord. Um, the next thing that we would want to look at, and again, we've already talked about the resurrection, we've, which is the greatest miracle. But mm-hmm. once we get into then the Acts of the Apostles and the uh, and the promulgation of the Church, promulgation probably not the right word, the the growth of the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking at the notes you passed along, and you said that there are what are called moral miracles. What's the distinction between a miracle as we generally understand it and a moral miracle? So, I mean, there are also going to be physical miracles post, um, you know, post Christ. We have the apostles themselves working miracles. So uh, it's not just that, but I think it's important is we can always look at each one of those things in the case of saints. And maybe we'll have a moment to to look at one or two here or something like that before, before we go. But, um, Moral miracles are a very important thing, too. We kind of mentioned them before in the last episode. So here's not a miracle in the strict sense where we can see a physical effect that can't be explained by natural or diabolical causes. Rather, we're seeing some historical event or a a circumstance, a a trend um, that can't be explained by normal and typical natural causes or the laws of human nature. Um, uh, we mentioned before the endurance of the martyrs, right? This is this is not just one martyr enduring something. It's not just people who are, you know, really convicted about this. Uh, G.K. Chesterton writes a great thing about the modern martyr. It's a, it's a great a, a little a little essay. I encourage people to read it because it's so applicable for our times. And he says it, it, it wasn't that um, the people, it didn't convince people that, you know, the martyrs had these convictions. It's, you know, that's what you do when, when you just suffer a little bit for a political cause. But here are the martyrs, their feet being eaten by lions. And it, you know, they're singing and joyful. And, and that's helping to convince the people around them that, well, you know, maybe this Christian thing, if I believe it and I'm not being eaten by a lion, I'll be happy, right? It's uh, right. it's it, it's a it's a funny little thing that he says, but it's so true. Um, and that's the kind of moral miracles we're talking about here. Um, the endurance of so many martyrs from so many different strata, socioeconomic strata, different degrees of knowledge of Christ, sometimes just seeing another martyr and jumping in themselves. Um, yet they're they're enduring these things joyfully. And and that's something that no law of human nature can explain. Yeah, I'm going to go to death and I just found out about this Christ guy and he's great. I'm just going to die for him, right? And happy to do right. so. Doesn't happen. Um, but we can see, in fact, one of the greatest moral miracles um, in the New Testament age, we could say, is the very fact of the spread of the church, right? So quickly, so rapidly, and in an environment where that never should have happened. Um so look at first Palestine in the apostolic era, right? We're, um, we're recording this during Pentecost week. Um, so we're reading the Acts of the Apostle this whole week and all the miracles that are happening. And we read a few of these too, right? St. Peter shows up and he gives his first sermon in Acts 2, um, 3,000 converts, right? That doesn't usually happen, you know? I mean, I, no. yeah, that would be great if we could go out there. We'd have 
fundraising would be really easy for the society if if, if I could just go out and make three thousand converts by saying a few things. I, I I I have trouble making converts of my own my own faithful at that point in time. I don't want to give a sermon. Yeah. Um, would that I had had that power. Um, yeah. A little bit later, St. Saint, Saint Peter and St. John, they, there's that miracle that happens in Acts 4, 2,000 more converts. And then St. Peter's walking around Acts 5 and his shadow is healing people, right? Um, and that's making more converts. These people are coming and they're coming in droves. And that that's not normal. That doesn't normally happen. Yes, there are physical right. miracles that are happening there, but we, we see that growth very quickly. Even outside of Palestine in that time, out during that apostolic era, uh, St. Peter himself, whose you know, shadow is healing things and winning converts by miracles and sermons, uh, he's testifying in his first letter. It's the very beginning of it. There, there are many different groups in his own time in Asia Minor, right? So over in the Anatolian Peninsula, around the Greek islands, there are, there are already... Um, there are already churches there. There are already groups. And in St. John's Apocalypse, written 90 AD or a little bit later, um, he writes to the seven churches in Asia, so the bishops there. There's already this established church in the first century. Um, and, and up to the Edict of Milan, it, it continues with this amazing growth there. Um, okay, so with that, um, I'm remembering good old Pliny. Right. Uh, not the younger, not the older. Um, yeah. He was the governor of Bithynia, and um, he is testifying during his his time there that the, the temples are empty. Everyone's converting to Christianity. We don't have people coming and sacrificing to the gods anymore. Um, St. Irenaeus um, is living in the second, the sort of later first half, second half of the, uh, the second century. Um He's testifying that there are churches in Germany and in Spain and France and in the East. So already most of the Roman Empire at least has been exposed to this, maybe not, maybe not the Anglo part of it. Um, in 190, there's the Easter controversy. Um, so this is the question of when we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, do we stick with the Jewish calendar, with the moons, or we do fix it on a certain date? Um, and the whole question comes up under Pope Victor. And it shows that there is this confederation of churches from Edessa over, over towards uh, Anatolia to Lyon. And Rome is the head of this. We, we see it. Uh, and they're coming to a pope to answer this question. We already see the, the, the questions of the papacy there, but we also see a, a massive church. Tertullian, end of the third century, so just before, um, you know, just around the time of the Edict of Milan there, he says Christians have filled all places. Um, so impressive. Right. And, and yeah, here, here we have 12 guys who are not educated um, and, and they're going out and making all of these converts. That's a moral miracle that does not happen unless there's something behind it, unless there's something abnormal about it. So much so that in 313, we have it's the estimate is that 10 percent of the Roman Empire's population is Christian. So that's six to eight million Christians by 313. So we, we start with. Our Lord and twelve guys, in <laughs> yeah. uh, and three hundred years later, six to eight million people. Um, this is not viral vi video time, right? This, <laughs> there, there is no way to communicate this kind of thing. And three hundred years is, is is that's impressive. It's, it's particularly blip. impressive too because everything around it, the circumstances show this is a kind of miracle. And Christianity is a new religion. It's directly antagonistic to all of these pagan religions. It's very exclusive. 
the pagans, they don't like that. And yet you're winning converts. The other's religions have social and political favors, right? It, to be a Roman, a part of the Roman religion meant that you had some favors. You were a Roman citizen. So you lost those favors if you converted. Um, Christianity has a really demanding moral code, a moral code that um, is opposed to a lot of the social norms, right? Especially in the Roman world. The Christian mm-hmm. God is a crucified criminal. Um, not not very attractive for, for most in the pagan yeah. world. Um, Christianity is violently opposed by the state and at certain times. And it seems like every time it is, more people show up. That doesn't, that not, normally shouldn't happen, right? And those spreading the religion normally had no wealth, like the apostles, no learning, not a whole lot of political uh, influence. And not until later do you have those people, and yet you have this rapid spread. So it's not a physical miracle, but again, it's it seems difficult to explain these with the laws of human nature being what they are. And and right. so there you are. We, we have this difficulty, and we can say that's one of the proofs of the church and its divinity is that it must have something behind it to have spread this far. It's, we can't go through historical, philosophical, and relevant truth here, but we can show certain signs. Um, we can right. argue for it in a certain way. And, the, the, and things spread quickly uh, mm-hmm. in history in, in various aspects, but generally speaking, when, when there is a philosophical um, idea that is being spread across nations, again, it has happened. But where, when has it happened? Alexander the Great, the Roman Empire. It's always been at the point of a sword. It's never been a bunch of people preaching mercy and goodness and forgiveness. It just, again, logically doesn't make sense how this works. Why, why did Islam spread? Well, there were a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, young men who had a lot of ambition to conquer a lot of territory, and you had a big army. There were no mm-hmm. Christian armies. And yet, right. in about the same amount of time, it took over more, more territory. Right. Well, there were Christian armies. That's the Crusades. We're going to get that yeah, into yeah. that with Dr. Rao a little bit later. So, okay, good. Just side note there. I haven't prepared for that one at all. I mean, we can always <laughs> talk about the Fourth Crusade because that's a fun and interesting one. And the story behind that is just terrible. But, you know, yeah. I'll leave that to him. Fair enough. Um, all right. So that is those are miracles, moral miracles from from the time of, of the apostles and, and the spread of the early church. Can we talk just about a couple, three different miracles that have happened throughout the rest of the life of the church? Well, not to make this very long, I'll, I'll take an example of um, a moral miracle and also a physical miracle because they, they actually get tied together in, for instance, with saints. Um, so as we said at the beginning, I, I was in New Zealand for a while, Oceania, as they say, down that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so New Zealand was was uh, evangelized by the Marists. And one of the one of the uh, most prominent of the Marist saints is the proto-martyr of Oceania. That's St. Peter Chanel. Um, and what's very interesting about him, we can see a moral miracle in just his life. I've used this example with, with uh, the classes I've taught in the boys in, in various ways uh, for, for maybe not the, uh, maybe not the example that they wanted. Um, so he's a Marist missionary, St. Peter Chanel. He shows up, he's dropped off by uh, Bishop Pompalier on the Island of Futuna in the South Pacific. Futuna and Wallace are really close together. They're, they're sort of one unit. They're, they're French speaking. We'll, we'll give him a pass on that. It's okay because he's a saint. Um, but uh, he, he's, he was known for being very humble and very meek. And so he's dropped off on the 8th of November, 1837. He works for four years there. 
He's well-liked, but no one's converting. Very few converts. But eventually, he happens to have a conversation with the king's son. Now, it's interesting in some of these Polynesian areas, there is a kind of paganistic religion, but it, it wasn't one that was, it was more like the Roman religion where, okay, people did these things, but it was sort of a, um, a personification of without a whole lot of worship behind it. So it wasn't a serious violation of, of the, um, of the King's power, who is the, supposedly the King is the high priest of this pagan religion, but it does start if his son converts and now is the one that is going to take the throne, it does cause a little bit of a political scandal there. And that was more the issue. He had a bit of a Henry the second moment. Well, somebody rid me of this middle meddlesome priest and uh, mm-hmm. somebody takes up the charge and goes and um, uh, kills uh, St. Peter Chanel. He beats him to death. And um, uh, so that w- was, was terrible. But what was interesting is that despite the fact that he had so few converts beforehand and he was well known and he helped in, uh, during a hurricane a cyclone down there, he was well liked. Um, no one converted. And yet now he's dead and everybody converts. And I mean, everybody, oh, wow. like the entire island, the entire island converts. Not only that, the person who has killed him uh, decides that it was such a such a terrible sin that he asks that he be buried when he dies in front of the church where uh, uh, dedicated to St. Peter Chanel so that people have to walk over his grave as kind of a penance after this life of, of shaming him for what he's done. He converts um, uh, the entire, the entire Island converts. It, it's a, it's a Our Lady of Guadalupe type miracle here where it just, it, mm-hmm. nothing was go- happening and then everything. And wow. again, doesn't really, um, it, it can't really be explained. There's no good reason why the example of one good man would convert everybody so quickly and so universally. And so universally too, that um, not only there, they, they create a Hakka-like dance, if you're familiar with a Hakka, that is a sure. penitential act to make up for this. And that spreads to other islands as well. Uh, the, so there's this sort of penitential act kind of dance by which we make up for our sins and we were confi- it's it's pretty impressive. And there we have a moral miracle. Um, the lesson I gave to the, the boys I was teaching was, you know, sometimes you do great work. And the only way that that great work is actually going to going to, you know, going to happen is for you to get out of the way. And in a certain sense, that's mm-hmm. what happened here. Right. Sometimes we set we we want we, we plant somebody else has to water um, and we won't get to see the good results, but they will happen because if it's if it's from God. Um, so it's a good lesson there, but also a moral miracle. Not only this, um, as a result of his martyrdom, he's beatified because the, the, the idea is that you can be beatified if you're a martyr, a proven martyr, um, but you can't be canonized without miracles. You need miracles attributed to the intercession of a saint. Um, and many miracles are attributed after 1850. Um, so these are the physical miracles, not just moral miracles here. Um, but it was two that stood out, and we can look at the one, um, Francois Viaudury. Um, he was a man, was a soldier, 1882. Um, he's sent to fight a fire in the barracks. Explosion happens, and the explosion doesn't kill him, but it causes, because of the pressure shock, the detachment of his retinas. It's terribly painful. Um, and from this, unless it's fixed, 
almost immediately, even today, um, you will go blind and there is no fix. You cannot recover from this once the retinas are attached. They will not heal unless surgical intervention and immediately. Um, 1890, he's being treated in a hospital. Uh, so he's in, uh, urged to invoke St. Peter Chanel, who the people had recently heard about eight years after the fire. So this is eight years. Like, there's no going back at this point in time. And he's right. completely healed. He regains his sight. Um, but we can quickly go through. Here's a historical truth. There's testimony. There's a cure. Multiple witnesses to make this happen. The Congregation of Rights, who was in charge of canonizations, uh, makes makes um, takes a panel of physicians. They look at the case. There is no natural explanation. So we can even philosophical truth already there. And it's notable, too, because the Congregation, Congregation of Rights had already recently rejected another miracle as not being sufficiently uh, excluding of natural causes. And so it wasn't as if they're rushing into this canonization. They're looking for anything possible, which is oftentimes the charge uh, for some of these saints. Oh, you're just looking for anything. No, they were they were throwing out certain things. And, and here we have something that can't be explained. And it was one of the miracles that was used for his canonization. Uh, what's the purpose? The whole purpose of these saints and their miracles to glorify God. So in a Protestant objection there, the purpose of the miracles is to glorify God, who has worked through this man to bring some kind of holiness and intercession. And, and, and that's that's a beautiful thing. Um, yeah. And I'm sure we could go through every other canonized saint and find lots of miracles yeah. along the same lines. But there is one that probably not so well known. And yet. Here we go. A great example of how these things, kind of things are still working in our time. That's a, that's a beautiful example of a saint that I was not at all familiar with. So there you go. You can read up on it now. Up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, could we say that um, saints who are uh, incorrupt would also be considered miracle? I mean, but that, that's a, a miracle in and of itself, right? And I'm, I'm speaking, you know, again, we're recording this at the end of May. There's, there's a lot of uh, news about this. Uh, possible again. Want to be very careful and say possible uh, incorrupt um, sister in in Missouri, Sister Wilhelmina. Again, yeah, just up, just up the road from us here. Yeah, yeah. I'm not I'm not asking you to take a specific stance on it or to say the SSPX says this or that. But should this be approved, that would be a miracle in and of itself, too, right? Well, right now I'm going to try to get myself into terrible hot water over a cut. No, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, no, it's. You know, so that's well. That's isn't that why when we see things like that, a, a Saint Bernadette or uh, Mother Seton, or um, I think it's uh, Saint John Newman in, in Philadelphia, we we have apparently incorrupt saints, Saint Pius the Tenth, and um, you know, we have what look like very you know these are striking things. The Church obviously has to weigh in on them. We have we have mm -hmm. what looks impressive. Um, in the case here in Missouri, we don't even have a canonization. We don't have the case open. The bishop, from my understanding, was is planning to visit and start maybe an investigation, but we don't even have that. So yeah, it's way too early to make any determination. But sure. these kinds of things are impressive, and yeah, bodies don't normally um, you know stick around for that long. Uh, human right. tissue falls apart. We are parts, and when our soul, the thing that's holding us all together, is there, we fall apart. Um, so when we see something that is not explained and, and in a case where there's not embalming or preservation, yeah, it, it certainly appears to be on, on that historical level. There appears to be an effect here. 
And we don't have a good explanation for it. We do have to, again, then go through, we have to exclude natural causes. Embalming would be one of those things, but you know, people can be mummified in very dry climates and salty conditions and things like that. So we have to exclude that. Did that happen in, in this case here in Missouri or did it happen in the other case of the other uh, of saints or other people who seemingly are incorrupt? Um, what, a, you know, we have the, the case of they, they tried to preserve Lenin for a while. So it's it's not as if yeah. like we can just say, oh, hey, here here's a body. Um, uh, right. So we, we have to be careful with these things. But, yeah, those things can look like miracles and those kinds of things. Well, the church wouldn't take that initially as a sign of uh, as one of those miracles as a proof for canonization either, too. They need oh, physical okay. miracles. Um, they need physical miracles for the intercession of that saint, um, not just a physical miracle of a body. And so uh, we'll, we'll see what happens here. Um, I, I I don't want to pass judgment because I'm not the church. Sure. Um, I'm, I'm, I just work here, as they say. <laughs> no, no, no. Fair enough. And again, I, I just want to make yeah. clear for our listeners, we're not trying to say this is great. This is not great. This is it just it is a fact. It looks like it's happening. We don't know. Yeah, there's plenty that, more to be looked at. That's but. simply it. And and that was exactly what happened with with, you know, um, with St. Bernadette, with all of these apparitions and things like that. The church is a bit free with letting people in their own private capacity Think, visit, do these things, but they're very careful and they have been consistently careful of not seeming to give approval until there's a real investigation and, and you know, there's clarity on these things. And, and that's really important that we, we were careful with that. I think also for our own spiritual lives, for those people who are maybe more not not reading this for or listening to this for the apologetic value of it, our own spiritual lives, we have to do the basics first and not chase after all of these these um, esoteric and sort of amazing things, right? We, we oftentimes make a mistake there in thinking that, for instance, like, oh, wow, that exorcism or this, that, or that. We get interested in these really fantastical things. Yeah. It's a greater miracle to forgive sins in a confessional. It's an act of creation. There is nothing there, and now there is grace. It's a greater act. It's a greater miracle, to, and it's a greater power of a priest to, to forgive a sin um, and get, going back to that original thing that you may know that that God has given the power to man on earth to forgive sins, right? It's a greater miracle than an exorcism. And so right. we can we can pull ourselves to all of these weird things and forget the, the real miracles that do happen every day. The miracle of transubstantiation, for instance. So it happens every day on the altar. That's that's a great, that's one of the greatest miracles ever in in the history of 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 mankind right? ever in salvation history and there you are it happens every day um we we need to focus on those first and making sure our spiritual lives work with those not with sure. all of the not not flailing out to all kinds of things a natural consequence in the world that we live in that is absent such good catechism and things like that i guess we're trying to provide through through this series yeah absolutely uh, Father, thank you so much. Thanks You're for your time welcome. and going through all of these. And uh, it was it was really beautiful to, to kind of dissect them and, and look at them in all these ways. So thanks again for your time. Quite enjoyable on my end too. Hope to see you soon. All right, you too. Thanks, Father. All right. So Father Palco, we just did an episode on miracles and uh, we were going to talk about Eucharistic miracles, but the episode was already going a little bit long. So can we talk a little bit about mir uh, Eucharistic miracles? Again, these are miracles that happen 
fairly, not, I don't want to say fairly often, but there are many of them, right? There, there are at least, I think, 32 recorded um, examples of approved Eucharistic miracles in the history of the church. I might have my numbers a little bit off, but it's it's in that sort of um, somewhere between two and three dozen that the church has has investigated and, and seem authentic. Um, and, and these Eucharistic miracles are where a host, uh, the host and the wine at mass, not only are transubstantiated and sacramentally become substantially the body and blood of Christ. Um, but look at Catholic theology. We see the accident still. Like when you, when you go to communion, it looks like a piece of unleavened bread. It, it tastes like a piece of unleavened bread. It, you know, it, it you, you swallow it, it, it has calories. It has the chemical and makeup of a bread, but it isn't bread because what is, what is the thing really is what its substance is isn't identified by what we can see, what we can detect. It, it's it's what it is deeply and really, and it changes deeply and really into those things. The bread's gone, um, but there is the body of Christ. And then in the case of the the, the wine, there is the wine's gone. It's the precious blood. Um, but it takes an act of faith, right? And that act of faith that we make in doing that is is encouraged by the very fact of our Lord reigning hidden. Sometimes, though. In these cases of Eucharistic miracles, that's where our Lord, for a, a good purpose uh, that he himself will know, but maybe will communicate to us in a certain way, um, he allows not only the substance to change, but also the accidents to change as well. So now what, what it appears as is not a piece of bread. It, it appears to be human flesh. It appears to be human blood. Um, it, it's it's uh, it's an impressive thing. And yeah, there are there are several times this has happened, but we also have certain relics preserved from them. Um, there's one in in Italy, Lanciano. Are you familiar with that one? Yes, you are. Okay, yeah. So that's the one I, I sort of I, I I wrote up a few notes on to, to, to talk about here. Um, but that's an impressive one because it happened apparently because we don't have an exact date for it, but it happened reportedly in the eighth century. So 700s uh, best evidence seems to be about 730 to 750 depending on, or based off of some, some evidence around there. And it's a lot of people look at it and go, Oh, a monk who doubted transubstantiation. Well, he says the words of consecration. And then all of a sudden physically we have blood and, 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 and flesh in front of us. Um, it's actually a little bit deeper than that. Um, so it wasn't just um, this. In fact, the monk himself did not doubt transubstantiation, but the monk was an Eastern monk. It was a Basilian order that had been, that had come to Italy and he was having to use Roman, the Roman rite here at the time. It wasn't, it wasn't um, a plug for the Angels magazine. We have something on the first six centuries of development of that in the, in the June issue. Um, written by a great author, myself. <laughs> but you get to see in that case that the Roman rite, as it was established, the rite of St. Gregory there, it relates in a certain way to these Eastern rites. And they're sort of, you could use them early along. They diverged by about the 7th century at the, or 8th century at this point in time. But the one thing that was really different about them was the use of leavened bread. So in the East, in a lot of the rites, they use leavened bread, uh, whereas in the West, we use unleavened bread. Um, mm -hmm. And um, so the doubt was over that. 
he had a doubt about not the transubstantiation of unleavened bread, right? So it was a doubt about transubstantiation, but it was a doubt particularly about whether the Romans could actually have this. And this was a big debate in the church. So this miracle yeah. not only not only solves the problem of the doubt about this for this monk, but it also solves the question of doctrine as well. So we already see the relevant truth here. It con- confirms the doctrine of the church that you can use leaven or unleavened bread. Um, but so what happens is the, the, the miracle occurs. This monk says the words of consecration. The species become literal bread or little f- flesh and blood. They're no longer bread. They don't even appear like bread. And the relics are preserved by the Basilian monks. Okay, they're, they're preserved in Lanciano. The order ends up sort of dying out and eventually is replaced by the Benedictines. But the custody of these relics are kept from the Basilians to the Benedictines. So there's a clear chain of custody here. So historical truth, we can't get back to, oh, yeah, it was, you know, it was uh, F- Father um, Father Bob. He was the one who this miracle happened to. We, we don't, you know, Father Robert, you know. Um, Uh, We don't know that, but we do have this chain of custody of the relics and we have the story that goes with them that is of ancient origin as well. And the relics are preserved. Um, They've been that way since the 1100s and they were put into a reliquary in the 1500s. And that's what we have these days. So if you go to Lanciano, you see these relics, you see this, the the heuristic miracle there. That's what you're seeing. Um, Now, the host appears to be yellow brown membranous kind of thing with it's kept in what looks like a monstrance and there's a little hole in the center um maybe from the lance who knows um but the remnants of the wine are actually dried up into five little blood clots um mm. so this is all before to modern times in 1970 the bishop allowed a scientific and medical investigation of the relics so it's sort of like the Shroud of Turin, which is a whole other thing that we could talk about, too. In fact, um, one of the best people to talk about in society was Father Linnae. He knows it in, out, back, forward, and, and he was down in, in New Zealand with me for a while. We, we know lots of stuff about the, the Shroud okay. from him. So, But that's a different thing entirely. Um, but when the scientific and medical investigations happen on these things, we look back and we see that, okay – it's possible in maybe the 1600s, you could say, yeah, you just took some pig's blood or some some guy's blood and, and flesh and, and you made these things. How not a Eucharistic miracle at all, um, okay. except that when we start to do these investigations with modern instruments, we see things that make make it pretty clear that this is that, that they at least they try to establish pretty good pretty well the not only historical truth but the philosophical truth so when they do the investigation the ho- the host is found to be not just human tissue but human heart tissue and human heart tissue um, that is more or less complete with the different kinds of fibers that you can see in there there's details you can you can look up you can see the pictures that they've taken of these of the cells in there so it's It's preserved cells of human heart tissue. It's real preserved. And and again, this is 1,200 years later. Um, The stuff should be gone, right? And yet it's here. The blood is actual coagulated human blood. Not just human blood, but of the type AB, right? AB blood is a fairly new kind of blood. 
And yet all of the Eucharistic miracles show this same type of blood. It's consistent. And all many of the miracles are from well before blood typing, right? So we have a consistency across Eucharistic miracles for this. Um, not only that, uh, this was a rare type for Palestine. And you can think on sort of a more pious level, AB positive is the universal recipient, can take everything, right? Oh, you can take O-type blood, you can take positive, negative, you can take AB, AB, any of these. So th there's that pious side of things, but maybe that's part of it. Um, in the investigation, the, hope, the host has the exact same type of blood. So it, it, it matches um, the protein content is there, it's same minerals as real blood. So it, it hasn't decayed over that time. It's just dried up. Um, and this blood and flesh are more or less in their natural state. And they've been so for 1200 years. Um, stuff does, even if, even if they were, they were put into the reliquary and somehow we could, uh, a skeptic would claim it's from the 1500s when it went into the reliquary. Sure. Still for now, it's almost 600 years, right? Um, or 500 years. It, this kind of thing, they don't last that long. Even sealed up, you know, the stuff would decay and it hasn't decayed. It shows the same kind of thing there um, that we would have expected from, from fresh blood that had coagulated from fle fresh flesh. So while we don't have on the historical side of things, we don't have a clear detail of the original event. We do have a clear tradition and we have a clear chain of custody of the relics from this. We have, a, we have the, the effect even seen now. So there's a real effect. Philosophical truth, scientific analysis seems to exclude a lot of reasonable things. And the diabolical is excluded by this, you know, the very nature of this doctrine or what it's trying to establish. The relevant truth, confirming a doctrine of the church that unleavened bread can be used. Um, transubstantiation is real. It's uh, confirming these doctrines, increasing reverence for the mass and for the Eucharist and the honor of Christ and the blessed sacrament. Sort of a beautiful thing. And, and we see all of those yes. kinds of things that establish a miracle. Um, you know, it's, it's not as well established as seeing a historical event, perhaps, and having the, the, those things, but it's, it's pretty well established. And um, it's one of the more famous ones. But for all of these other ones, too, we can we can pretty much easily go through those and, and see some beautiful, some beautiful proofs of, of our faith. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and there's a, there are several books on, not just on this, but on, on all the other Eucharistic miracles as well. And I remember thumbing through those. I haven't looked at it mm -hmm. in years, but thumbing through it and going, wow, this is, this is, if, if you have doubts about your faith, that, that alone is a way to help restore your, your faith, uh, not only in the blessed sacrament, but in, in the church as well. Indeed. And, and the thing is, is if the transubstantiation is true, what churches teach it? I think there are two. Right. And then you have the question of the Pope, right? The, you have the Orthodox who believe this, you have the Catholics who believe this and nobody else. And then you have the question of the Pope. And once you have that and you have the question of the structure of the church, there's only one candidate. It's the Catholic right. Church. Absolutely. Father, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to look at this with us. I appreciate it. Not a problem at all. Glad to do so. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us 
and God bless you.